Hello, are we on the air yet? Welcome to the Core Performance Podcast, taking you one step closer to self-mastery on and off the course. Fire up that growth mindset, and let's dive into the core of elite golf and human performance. Now, here's your hosts, Ian Highfield and Andrew Losey. Welcome back, Core Performance Podcast listeners, core golfers, and high performers everywhere. Happy New Year to you. I'm Andrew Losey here with Ian Highfield. A little bit colder than normal, but we're ready to dive into the conversation with today's guest, Larkin Gross. Larkin is a PGA professional, and he's a very talented golfer. He and I actually graduated from college with one another. Throughout college, while I was focusing on becoming a better golf coach, Larkin was riding the bus collecting awards and a national championship for our small Division Three golf powerhouse, Methodist University. And he was also becoming a phenomenal golfer. As a freshman, he won the USA South Conference Championship by six shots. And then in 2018, Larkin helped the team win a national championship and closed his college career as a three-time All-American. Soon after college, he started to become known among PGA professionals as a highly capable player. In 2020, he was the Middle Atlantic PGA Section Assistant Professional Player of the Year. And then in 2021, he had a season that included eight wins in the section, a fourth place finish in the Professional National Championship, which gave him a spot in the 2021 PGA Championship at Kiowa. And now, because of his great play last season, he was named the 2021 PGA National Player of the Year, Larkin. Welcome to the show, and thank you for giving us your time. Yeah, of course. Glad to be on here, and thank you guys for inviting me on. And uh, it's good to talk with you again after a little bit of time where we hadn't really talked much. So, how are you guys doing? Doing great, doing great, Larkin. It's it's great to have you on, and, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Can you just tell us a little bit about your 2021 golf season and the goals that you had set for yourself, set yourself up for for that season? Obviously, including eight wins after the fact. But what were your main goals for that season? Yeah. Um, so 2020 was a good year, you know, for my first year being actually a professional golfer for my first foray into kind of being a PGA professional and playing in section events. Um, so I finished second in the MAPGA player of the year standing my first year being a professional. So obviously it made me hungry to kind of, you know, be the player of the year this year. And that was my main goal. Um, and it was good that I was able to have so much success last year or in 2020, because it kind of, you know, it showed me that I was capable of doing it. So I wasn't, it wasn't like I was setting a goal that was so far out of reach. Um, and that was my main goal for this year was to be our section player of the year. So that was, that was just the main thing I was focusing on coming in was trying to really peak at the right time and, you know, get that award. That's, that's great. And, and so, so how many events you won eight events, how many events did you actually play in for the section? Because to me, that sounds like, you know, a very dominant season. Yeah, so I played in – that's a good question. I think I played 13, if I remember correctly. I think it was wow. 13 total. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of the, the individual wins included APA events, so that's our assistant professionals association. So that's assistant professionals, aides, and teaching professionals play in those events. So they're a little bit smaller field. 
more like 20 players as opposed to the 40 or 50 that we'll get typically. But yeah, I played our our bigger events. We have about seven, you know, large events in our section, including the assistance championship and the our section PGA championship. Um, and out of those, you know, I think I I think I won four of those out of the seven. Wow. So it was good, and you know, I, it was a great year for me, and I was really you know, proud of how I played throughout the entire year. That's awesome. Uh, Larkin, I have a question. Uh, we are currently working with our students um, back at Core Golf on the goal setting process. And uh, one thing that, that we're teaching them is every time you declare a goal, what you want, you have to declare how you're going to get it and why you want it. And, and the reason that we teach that is obviously outcomes, what you want like you winning certain championships or being the number one player, they're uncontrollable. So a lot of our students, if they set a goal and they only declared what they want, they'd become stressed. So what I'm very interested in is I would love to know a little bit more about hand control when you're on the golf course that, that you focus on. You know, what you've achieved is awesome. But if we're really going to educate our students and, and the golfing world, I'm really uh, intrigued into how, how are you doing this? What are the, the processes and the habits that you've developed to be, to be so successful? Yeah. And that's a good question. And for me, it's really committing to putting time in on something every day that I can. So obviously, you know, sometimes schedule, you know, I'm a PGA professional, so I still work. Um, I still do, you know, 40 hours a week plus, you know, doing teaching and, you know, running tournaments and all that good stuff. So I kind of have to pick and choose a little bit of, of what I work on each day. So if I go in and I've got a, I'm opening, so I'm working from the, you know, 6.30 to 2.30 or 6.30 to 3, as soon as 3 o'clock hits, I'm putting my clubs on a cart or I'm bringing my clubs out to the putting green and I'm chipping and putting. And I think I think for me this year, I really made a conscious effort to put more time into my short game because for me, the strength of my game is my iron play, definitely. So where I, while I was losing shots and what was holding me back from that next level was my short game. So every day I tried to make sure that I was going out and putting as much time in to the things that I really had to focus on. So if I had two or three hours to practice, I'd go out and I'd try and spend at least an hour on chipping and putting. So I wouldn't even go, I wouldn't go anywhere other than the short game area. And that was my goal was to, by the end of the year, to be so comfortable with those shots and those types of situations that I could, you know, I could go out in a tournament and be like, okay, this is the shot that used to bother me, but now I feel so confident because I put so much work in on it that I can hit it no problem. And I think that was the big, the biggest thing for me because I struggled with high shots around the greens and I struggled with green reading and that stuff. So that's what I made sure that you talk about controllables, you know, I was able to control the time, you know, I had my time a lot, but what I could do, what I had to put in. So I controlled how much time I spent on each thing and tried to make sure that I was putting in the right amount of time in each aspect of my game. That's a, that's a great answer. I love that. Um, 
how did you know you struggled with those shots? Are you uh, someone who uses sort of intuition uh, or are you someone that maybe delves into a statistics program and breaks down your game? What was it that, that drove you to focus on that area? Well, so, you know, I am in college, we used birdie fire, which I think is a great program. Um, and last year in 2020, I, I felt as if, I wasn't a hundred percent sure where my strokes were go or where I was missing. Um, I knew that it was a little, I knew it was putting because that's something I've always struggled with, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure what aspects of putting, you know, cause I'm typically a very good lag putter and where I struggle is more of the five to 15 foot range. So I wanted to get a little bit more data and be able to see it for sure. So I actually, um, subscribed to birdie fire again this year what we use in college so i have decades birdie fire and i use um i use that to kind of track my stats this year and it showed me sure enough that where i was losing all of my shots was in that six to 13 foot range on the green and it, it's crazy it's actually remarkable how many shots i lose in that stand because of how often I actually hit it into that range. Um, and I also tracked, was able to track my short game stats, which I'm actually very good in kind of the intermediate short game shots. So 15 to 25 yards, I'm actually very good. And I'm actually worse the closer I get to the pin because typically that means that I've short-sighted myself or I put myself in a bunker that's way too close. Um, but it's nice to have that data and I really have enjoyed having that data to see because then I can tailor my practice, you know, to the right things as opposed to, oh, if I felt like I was actually struggling with 15 to 25 yard short game shots, well, that's not where I, that's not where I need to work on. Um, and I actually have the data to, to show me that now, which is really great and it's helped me a lot as, a, as far as practicing with a purpose, practicing with the correct outcome in mind as opposed to just going out you know, practicing everything when in reality, I probably should spend more time on certain things. Yeah, that's, a, that's amazing. I think when the core students listen to this, they're going to think that I've bribed you because uh, the, the, the goal setting and focusing on the controllables is the first thing that we've touched on. And then this evening, we're actually getting some of our uh, more experienced players on a stats program uh, called Up Game. Uh, and we're, we're doing it basically for the very, very reasons that that you've just shared um now let me ask you this do you like putting stats in because i know a lot of my students aren't going to want to do it a lot of andrew's students aren't going to want to do it so is there a point where last year you started to do things that you didn't like or didn't necessarily want to do because you knew they were part of those controllables that would lead to success yeah, and, and I completely understand, you know, the, the putting the, the data in. And it, it can, I actually use the old full strokes gain entry on Barney Fire, which is a pain in the butt. Um, but it's the best way for me to see what I need to see. Um, and it was much easier in college because we had a different version. Barney Fire actually has a version for um, teams, and they have a version for individuals. And the version for college teams is a lot more simplified. Um, now, granted, it doesn't give you as precise information on the output, but, you know, like I, I completely get the, 
the idea that, oh, it's annoying to kind of go through and put everything in. Um, but it's it's 100% worth it for me. And I didn't do as many rounds as I probably should have this year. Like, there are some rounds that, unfortunately, I didn't track and I wish I had. Um, because I missed, actually, a lot of some of my better rounds and seeing what, you know, what got me to the that great score it kind of got lost in transition a little bit just because you know for our section championship i played three rounds in the 60s but in the heat of the moment in the section championship i wasn't worried about oh i was 175 on that shot so i could put it in later you know it was i was kind of you know focusing on the outcome as opposed to you know more of the process of tracking my stats and i i have a pretty good memory as far as it comes to that. So I probably could go back and, you know, piece it together. But with how specific the information is, it wouldn't be, you know, as good as the, the data wouldn't be as precise as I would prefer it to be. Um, but it definitely, I would say it's 100% worth it to, to go through and to see that information because, one, it saves you time in the long run because you know what to practice on and you're not wasting time practicing on things you don't need to, you might not need to practice on it, you know, if, if you're really losing shots in short game and you go out and bang drivers, it's going to be great that you're driving it well, but you're not losing shots because of your driver, you're losing shots because of short game. So you can drive it as well as, as amazing as you can hit all 18 fairways, but if you're not hitting every single green, which, you know, as good of an iron player as I feel like I am, I've only done it maybe twice in my career, you're going to have to use short game eventually. So that's kind of the thing that, that has really stood out to me is being able to pinpoint what I actually need to spend time on as opposed to wasting time on things that don't re that aren't really hurting me at that moment. Yeah, Larkin, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I like that we're chatting about, um, you know, collecting stats to, to guide your practice. And it's something that a lot of tour pros are doing now and, and has been happening now for, for many years. And you talk about your iron play being one of your best aspects of your game. And I've been lucky enough to watch you on the range and I still hold you in, in probably the highest regard of one of the best iron players I've ever seen. Um, I remember, I remember watching you one day and, and it seemed like for two hours, maybe not the best use of your time, but for, for what seemed like two hours, you were just hitting a three iron and a three wood and a driver at the same target. And just every single shot you called was going to be a draw or a fade. And you seemed to be able to do it every single time. Um, and just right out of the center of the face too. So um, really cool to see you hit the ball, you know, better than, better than most people. Um, and this summer you were able to, uh, to see some other players that hit the ball really well a lot of the time at the PGA Championship in Kiowa. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to Kiowa um, and then what was it like to play practice rounds with guys like Henrik Stenson and uh, who, who again is another really strong iron player um, and just your whole experience at, uh, at a major because that's something that us mortals uh, won't ever really be able to do. Yeah. Um... As far as the journey to Kiowa, I was playing in my first professional national championship, you know, PGA Club Pro Championship. Um, and obviously, you know, the goal is 
to make it to the PGA Championship, right? When you go there, like, that's what everybody dreams of. Um, but obviously, with it being my first opportunity at it, I was a little bit more, I think, receptive to the idea that possibly, you know, I, I could go out and I had no idea how I was going to react to the pressure. So I knew on the inside, obviously, you know, you want to put out that you're confident and all that stuff, but you have to temper expectations, especially when you're putting yourself in a situation that's completely new. So obviously I played a national championship before. I played in, you know, big events, but that I did, I had no idea how I was going to feel standing on that first tee the first day at PUT. And it was, I was nervous. Like my hands were shaking. Um, so I was able to play really, really solid golf the first two days. Um, and then the third day, I just went ballistic. I, I made 11 birdies. Um, I actually started out birdie, birdie, double, which was a little of a shock. But, you know, it, I think that moment was a big moment for me in as a golfer because I did a really great job of controlling my emotions and, and going through the scenario in my head as a, hey, not a, hey, we just made double and lost two shots, but a, hey, we just made double, we're still even through three holes and we're still in a great position. Um, and I think that was a huge part of me being able to bounce back that day and still and shoot an amazing score because I could have very easily folded. You know, I could have very easily been, oh, I just made two birdies, I had something special going and I doubled. But I didn't do that and I think that was a big part of why I was able to do what I was able to do that week in general. It wasn't just that day. You know, I I had done a great job of controlling my emotions the first two days as well. Um, the last day I did not, uh, understandably, because I was in a situation that was just, I, I mean, playing in the final group of this tournament that is, you know, you're the youngest player in the field and you've never been in that situation. You're playing with Omar Uresti, who's already won one of these. You're playing with Ben Cook, who's played three of these already. You know, so it's, it was, um, that final day, I, I had nothing left. I was gassed. Um, and, but I did what I needed to do, and that was the important part. And I think that the emotions after that round, like the kind of like final letdown, like the sigh, oh, it's over, thank goodness. And then realizing I was going to play a Kiowa, that was one of the coolest things ever. Um, and then as far as Kiowa goes, and the PGA Championship, I mean, that was an experience I can't even describe, uh, you know, just being or, like you're on the putting green and you're putting next to John Rahm, like, and Justin Thomas and these guys that you've watched play growing up and you've kind of like idolized them. Like it was, it was an experience, you know, you just can't believe it. And I was, get to go over and hit balls on the range. And I hit balls by Phil one of the days and, um, Involved by Zach Johnson. It, it was just those guys are so good. It just it makes your head spin. Like and and I wouldn't say the funny thing, the thing that I really my takeaway from playing with those guys, I got to play with Ricky Fowler, Kevin Kisner, Hudson Swaffer, I played with uh Henrik, which was awesome. Um but I think the biggest takeaway was they don't necessarily hit it that much better than me and they really don't hit it as far as you think now asterisk is like 
Bryson and John Rahm and DJ, they hit it far. Like the, you know, the top 20 guys on tour, as far as driving this, they hit it far. There's no, make no mistake about it. It's otherworldly what they can do. But the guys that are, you know, like your Kevin Kisner's, your Ricky's, um, even Henrik, they don't, they don't hit it, you know, out of the ballpark. They just, they hit it really straight and they hit it about, you know, they fly it about 295 and, you know, they don't hit it any further really than I did. I'd say, when I played with Ricky and Hudson and Kisner the first day, I, I was I hit it the same distance, just not farther than them. Um, pretty much every drive. But and I really didn't hit my irons any worse than they did. I would say I hit it probably just as good as they did, but they made me look like a thirty handicapper around the green. Like and it was what they did with the golf ball around the green is I, it's nothing short of like magic. I can't explain it. I mean, they have every single shot in the bag and then some. And they have shots that you would never think of. Like you could throw a ball, you could stand on the putting green and close your eyes, spin around, and just throw a ball from the middle of the putting green. And wherever it ended up, they'd probably get it up and down. Like that's just how good they are. And that's the difference. And putting and short game is the the biggest difference between those guys and even your like mini tour players, like the guys who go out and shoot six under and mini tours, they, it makes them look like they have no idea what they're doing. And it, that's the difference. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I have a question. Where were you most nervous? Teeing off in the, in the, in the championship, coming down the stretch in the, the, the championship or first tee at, at at Kiowa, or even in the practice round, right, with one of these big boys, where did you feel most of the the nerves and the anxiety? Um, and then what did you do to uh, to deal with that? Do you have any specific strategies, or do you just recall back to, like, you've had a lot of success in, in your career and you can just talk to yourself in a certain way? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So it's funny. I was super, super nervous on the first tee of the practice round the first day because I was actually playing a match, Ricky and I versus Kisner and other <laughs> That is and awesome. Was, and, and the funny thing is, you know, Ricky carries the crowd with him wherever he goes. And, you know, like even even though he had a, he's had a couple down years by his standard, everybody wants to watch Ricky. So, you know, I'm standing on the first tee and there's 50 people watching. And I just, I hit a duck hook off that first tee in the practice round. I was so nervous. Um, but because I had that experience that first day, the first tee on the first day of the PGA Championship, I was not nervous. I was not nervous for that tee shot. And I have no idea why. I couldn't wow. tell you. Um, I wasn't nervous. I freaked out when I got in the middle of the fairway. Like, when I got to my second shot, I was like, oh, no. What, like, what do I do? And it's, it's funny because, like, you would, I would have expected to be really nervous on the drive, but I wasn't. Um, but when I got to that second shot in the fairway, I, I was like, it was almost like I realized I was in the PGA Championship, and I, I was like, oh, no, what do I do now? Like, I, this is crazy. Um, so it's funny, and I, I did not control my emotions well on that first time, the first day. I, I just did. I mean, and, and it's understandably so. You know, I, I had no idea how I was going to react. Um, to that, to just that moment. Um, and 
you know, I, I think I did a really good job on the back nine that first day of being able to control my emotions because I shot six over on the front nine. I had a bad three putt on the whole nine and I was six over and I was like, you know what? Like you're playing in the PGA championship, you know, it's a hard golf course. This is just the experience of a lifetime. Like go have fun on the back nine. And I think that's really, and I played really well on the back nine. I shot two over with a double on the back nine. That, that um, was going to be my next question was, was enjoyment. Um, you know, it sounds like when you were going through the process of qualifying, you didn't really necessarily enjoy that final round because you knew what, what was at stake. Um, and it was more about getting it done than, than embracing and enjoying. And, and I wondered if the same took shape at the PGA because, you know, again, um, the juniors that, that we coach, we're always telling them, you know, embracing every moment, enjoy it. You play this game because because you love it. And it it sounds like as time progressed, you started to do a a better job of that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I really enjoyed the just the experience, especially I had my dad chatting for me, which made a big difference having somebody that I knew so well and you know, somebody who grew up and watched me, you know, he was a big part of why I got into golf and of helping coach me and teach me the game early on. Having him on the back and caddying for me was a, a huge part of why after that front nine, the first day I was able to enjoy it a little bit more. Cause it was a lot of, you know, I had my whole family there. My girlfriend Paige was there. I had a lot of people who supported me throughout my career that came and watched me in the practice round and watched me play. So I was able to, you know, enjoy the moment a little bit more than PGA. And I think it was because I did a really good job of not putting expectations on myself with PGA Championship. Like, I I approached it as a learning experience and an experience of, you know, this is something I made up. You know, as much as good of a player as I feel like I am, and it's something I might have only got to do once. So it was something that I wanted to really enjoy and kind of soak in. And, you know, the front nine, I think it was a little bit of my competitive spirit thing, you know, kind of being bullish and saying, oh, like, you, you should be playing much better in these positions. But in reality, I'd never seen golf like that before. I mean, that type of golf with the wind that we had and the conditions, I'd never played anything like that before. Um, and I definitely don't play it on a regular basis like those guys do out on tour. So it's a big difference. Um, and I think, like I said, after that front line, I did a great job of kind of tempering my expectations and just having fun the rest of the time that I was there, which is a big part of it. Um, and it's why we all play golf. You know, it, no matter what, you know, I, I say I hate golf probably multiple times a week. Um, you know, and I don't mean it ever. I love golf and I can't get enough of it. Um, and I think that one thing that I'm always wary of is I don't want to make myself, I don't want to ever put myself in a situation where I'm not having fun. And it happens sometimes because when you don't play well, obviously it's not fun, to, to, but then you almost have to kind of shift gears and say, okay, you know, there are a lot worse things I could be doing right now. And that it was easy to do that at the PGA Championship. Um, I think it was harder to do it at the PNC just because at the PNC, I was playing against my peers. You know, I was playing against people at the same level, you know, working class guys. Well, I should, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of PGA professionals, there are a lot of guys who play a lot of golf and practice a lot. But the majority of them out of the 312 guys there 
you know, they're all PGA professionals. We're all PGA professionals. We all, you know, work for a living. We all, you know, some of us teach, some of us do tournaments, you know, but we all work for a living in the golf industry. We were around it because we love it. Um, so it was a little bit easier to get frustrated because I knew I wasn't out of my league there. Um, but at the PGA Championship, I kind of, you going into it that it was going to be a situation that I, I could never have prepared for in the small time that I had. It was only a month between the PNC and the PGA. So I, that, there's not, you know, there wasn't enough time for me to ever get ready for that situation. So I was able to be a little bit more of almost like a tourist there, you know, like I was obviously playing golf at the PGA championship, but it was also learning as much as I could, you know, taking in as much as I could and, meeting as many people as I could and learning from them. Um, so I think to answer your question, you know, the PGA Championship was definitely easier to be a little bit more, like to have fun. Like I was out there in one of the coolest situations I could ever be. You know, it, I wasn't playing for my livelihood. I wasn't playing to, you know, I really didn't have anything left to prove. So I got to kind of go out and enjoy myself, which was really fun. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and Lark, you know, you, you close out the year being named the PGA National Player of the Year. You represent, you know, the, the 28,000 PGA professionals so well. And so, so thank you for being a, a great PGA professional and, and congratulations on a great season. And, and you know, again, I, you, you had nothing, nothing left to prove. I think getting that, that National Player of the Year award uh, through the PGA, it's a great end, end to that that amazing season that you had. Um, Larkin, just a couple more questions. If we can um, take you back, I know, I know about your story having, you know, um, gone to college with you. And for those that, that don't know Larkin in high school, he was the, as a senior, he was the state champion for Virginia. We have lots of talented juniors um, and having watched a lot of junior golf myself over the last year and a half, there seems to be a stigma about, you know, being a junior golfer and wanting to go division one and play division one collegiate golf. Um, you as a very talented junior golfer and a very talented collegiate golfer, what was that decision like to, to forego going to a division one school and then instead go to a smaller division three school where you played for all four years? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And it's, I always, you know, obviously I had a, the dream of playing division one, but I, I was definitely more of a late bloomer in golf than a lot of other people. Um, I really didn't start playing great golf until probably my, my senior year of high school. And by that point, it's too late to get into the recruiting process. You know, most schools, most D one school already have their roster still by that point. So, um, I was lucky enough to have had a connection with Coach Conley of the Methodist through Mason Sutler um, because Mason's dad, my dad knew each other, and my dad, you know, well, we obviously watched Mason when they won the national championship the year before I got there. So I, got a, I had a relationship with Coach, and he, was, he wanted to bring me in to play on the team. Um, but I was, you know, I wasn't very highly recruited. Um, I had some looks from Longwood, um, a little bit from George Mason, but nothing super like D1 serious. And I wanted to, I was struggling with the decision to do PGM, professional golf management. 
And I finally, about midway through my junior year of high school, I was like, okay, I want to do professional golf management. And, but I also wanted to play golf on the team. And the only place you could do that really was Methodist. I mean, you could do it at other places, but it was, you know, there wasn't a place like Methodist that made it easy to do it. So that kind of made my decision for me. And then it just so happens that, you know, after I'd already told coach I was coming and done all that stuff, I started to play really good golf. Um, that it was actually that spring of my senior year of high school, I really started to kind of come into my own. I had a really great summer leading up to coming into Methodist. And I actually got, um, I got offers from a couple D1 schools, uh, George Mason specifically, to like transfer to George Mason and kind of decommit from Methodist and go to George Mason. And I, I did I didn't want to. I thought that, you know, Coach Conley had kind of believed in me when I wasn't really that great. And I also still was very passionate about doing PGM. So I really did, you know, I kind of just stuck with it. I told my dad, I was like, hey, I, I want to I go to Methodist. And that was a good decision for me. Um, and I, I, people ask me all the time, my mom asked me all the time, because my mom was a college counselor. She asked me, do you think that, do you have any regrets about going to Methodist? And I can safely say that I don't. It was the right decision for me. And it's not always the right decision for everybody. Um, but being able to play at a high level, even though we're division three, you know, we played a couple D one tournaments while I was there and we, you know, I was able to win a national championship. I played four national championships. Um, and I gained a lot of instruction from coach that I don't think I would have got at other places. Um, coach Conley is obviously a legend. I mean, you know, that just as well as I do. Right. And the instruction that he provided me, especially with short game, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. I was not a complete player coming into college. Um, and where I was lacking the most was short game. And that's where he kind of helped me. And, you know, obviously it doesn't, you know, it's not like that for everybody. I'm a, I'm a specific case. You know, I, Coach Conley was able to give me what I needed in my game and also teach me how to be a better player and learn aspects of the game that I didn't have before going in. But I think it's a very individualized thing. And, you know, for some people it wouldn't work out. Like I had a buddy who didn't want to do PGM, um, but didn't really have that many D1 offers. So he went to D3 for two years and then transferred to D1 and finished out his college career at ODU playing D1. So um, to juniors who are kind of, you know, trying to figure out what to do. I would say it's definitely a conversation to have, you know, with you and your family and kind of what you believe in, like kind of how you feel about the situation. But I also would say don't be afraid to go D3 because college as a whole has gotten so good. College golf in general has gotten so good that going to a top-ranked D3 school, I promise you, I would have taken – our team my junior year against any D1 school that was outside the top 35 in the nation. Like, obviously, Oklahoma State, Ohio State, you know, those guys are good. They're a different level. Those are, those are kids that are ready to go to the PGA Tour when they leave college, basically, or ready to go to the Corn Ferry when they leave college. But when you get down to, like, outside the top 50 in the nation, golf teams, or even the top 35, I would have put us up against them Every time. I mean, we played my senior year, 
Um, we played at the Naval Academy tournament, and I think we finished fourth or something like that. Um, you know, in a, in a Division One, fully Division One field, other than us. So I think that it's something that there's not a there shouldn't be a stigma around going D three. It doesn't mean you're lesser. It just means that maybe you made a decision that you wanted that you know was right for you, like going to Emory. Emory University is a really, really good school. It's better than a lot of D1 schools educationally. And they also just happen to have a great golf program. And they've won a lot of tournaments. They have a lot of really great players who probably could have gone D1 that went to Emory because they wanted the education there. Same thing with Washington and Lee. They have a really great program. Um, this is a but they have, Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, this is awesome information because when I arrived in the, in the U.S., um, I've been here for, I don't know, maybe coming up to 10 years now. And when I arrived, I, I was a bit unfamiliar with the collegiate system. It, it's not really done the same way in, in the UK. And I coached kids that in my first couple of years of being in the US went to Auburn, Oklahoma, Wake Forest, um, Programs of, of of that caliber or just below, but a lot that came with the with the D one tag. Uh, not many of them play golf anymore. Uh, I currently coach three players that are on the PGA Tour of Canada. All three of them came out of D three schools. So there's a little mini statistic in in my world that that backs up what you're saying. And I'm trying so hard for. This is almost like a, a brand thing. Like going to D1 is like buying a pair of Jordans <laughs> and going, you know, it, it yeah. feels like that. It feels like people are choosing a brand or a logo, the, 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 the D1, rather than choosing what's, what's best for them as a, as a human, as an individual, what's going to tick the most boxes and what's going to make them happiest. So I, I love this message that you're putting out there because it's something yeah. that, that we try and share at, at core as much as we possibly can. Well, and I, and, you know, like I said, the, the upper tier of D1 schools, those are, it's a different level of golf. Those are guys that are ready to, they already have a game that will sustain on, you know, mini tours and court fairs. You know, they already have that level of golf. Um, but the, the difference that I've, and I have a lot of friends who went D1, um, and, the problem with going D1 is it, it almost becomes like a job. You know, the game that you love turns into a job. And it's hard for kids. You know, it takes a very certain person to deal with that. You know, it just, you know, a lot of times at 18, 19 years old, kids aren't ready to make something they love their job yet. You know, you're, you're still not in a place where you should have to look at something that provides you joy as something that's going to, seem like you have to do it every single second of your life um now there are people that are like that like i i played i grew up i was a little older than him but michael brennan he plays at wake forest now he's been last few years of college he's been one of the best ranked players in the nation um playing for wake forest and he was that kid and he came in ready to be that guy and he just has the mindset and the personality to deal with all the pressures that come with it and he wants you know it seemed to me like he was ready for that and he craved that. He wanted it to be like a job. Um, and, he, and he's found a way to make it to where he enjoys it as well. But D3 provides a little bit less stress as far as 
it's not mandatory practices every single day. It's not waking up at 6 a.m. for workouts. It's not, you know, it's a lot more of a almost symbiotic relationship between you and the coach and you and the guys on the team as opposed to your coach is like your boss and he's just slave driving you all the time. Like, you've got to be here at this point. You've got to eat this food. You've got to do this. You know, and I think, I think it just depends on personality and it, it's something that kids have to be a little bit, um, they have to be, they have to know who they are as a person because, you know, it's different for everybody. But I think the, the main thing and the biggest message of what I saw going through division three golf is there are players in D three that totally should be on a D one golf team. And COVID showed us that there were a lot of D three players that I knew and played against that ended up playing D one for their, you know, their extra year because of, you know, their COVID year. Um, Drew Mathers, um, there's a, there's a bunch more that I just can't remember off the top of my head. A lot of them actually stayed with D3, but they had offers to go D1, and they just decided to stay D3. Mm. Um, but one of the guys, Stephen Shepard, played for Huntington with, with Drew Mathers. He's on the Euro Tour now, um, the Challenge Tour, and he actually won last year on the Challenge Tour. So it's just – I think that this – you know, it goes back to the stigma of D3 being lesser than D1 and D2, and same thing, D2 being lesser than D1. It's not. It's just not that way anymore. It used to be because there weren't as many golfers back then. But we've seen so many golfers, so many junior golfers now, that the difference between D3 and D1 has gotten very thin. Um, where it didn't used to be like that, but now it is. And I think that it's just kind of. I think, that, like I said, the bottom line is there's just not that much of a difference, and you shouldn't look at yourself if you go to a a Washington Lee or a Guilford, yeah. you shouldn't look at yourself as lesser than going somebody who goes to ODU. It's just different. Yeah. Larkin, that, that's great advice. And, and before we got to let you go here, I just wanted to, to ask real quickly, um, you know, right now it's the off season. I know you're a PGA professional. You, you work for a living. Um, but what are you up to this winter? Are you playing in any pro events? Um, and then also, do you have you know, are, are you continuing your aspirations to, to one day reach it out on, on the PGA Tour, or, or what are your plans? Um, yeah, so I actually, I'm lucky enough that I work in a place where I have the winters off. Um, I have a seasonal job because the weather gets so cold up, you know, where I work that I don't, I'm not, it's not necessary for me to be there in the winter. So I'm very lucky in that regard. I'm actually down in North Carolina right now. Um, and I will head down to Florida Friday to play in the winter championships, the PGA winter championships. Um, so I'm just, you know, kind of working on my game, really trying to, you know, figure some stuff out. I struggled a little bit towards the end of the season last year in December, especially I was struggling, fighting a little bit of stuff on my swing. Um, I actually have a lesson with my coach tomorrow, Erica Larkin. Um, we're going to try and figure some stuff out over face over FaceTime, which is going to be fun. Um, but, yeah, it's, I'm just trying to work on my game and trying to work some kinks out and experimenting with some equipment, you know, stuff like that. Um, and to answer your question, I do still have aspirations to play for a living. Um, but it's just I, I'm able to have a lot of opportunities being a PGA professional and playing well in section events. Like, so being MA PGA Player of the Year last year for my section, I got exempted into the Wells Fargo in uh, May. So I'm wow. playing in the World's Hardware Championship, which is awesome. 
Congratulations. Um, so yeah, thank you. I, I'm super excited about it. Um, it's actually at a golf course. It's only about 35 minutes from where I currently live. So I'm super excited. Um, I think it's going to be a great opportunity. But I learned, I definitely had a, a rude awakening back in October when I did Corn Ferry Q School, second stage of Corn Ferry Q School. I realized that my game isn't where it needed to be. And it was a little bit of, you know, again, dealing with those emotions that I talked about a little bit earlier. It was a situation I've never been in before. But it's also, you know, I have to learn a little bit more about who I am as a player and figure some stuff out before I'm going to reach that level. So while I do have aspirations of playing, you know, on tour, I think I'm really enjoying doing what I'm doing right now. And I have opportunities to get, you know, to have tour starts and to maybe do, especially with now being player of the year, I might have the opportunity to get some sponsor exemptions on the Corn Ferry and the PGA Tour. So I'm, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing right now, and I'm going to continue to hopefully do Corn Ferry Q School this year as well and just see where it takes me. Yeah. Well, Larkin, uh, we, we wish you the best of luck here from the Core Performance Podcast and, and all of our core golfers and, and listeners will be, uh, you know, trying to, to watch you um, at, at that Wells Fargo and we'll watch your journey and we wish you the best of luck and thank you so much for, uh, for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks guys. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me on. It's a lot of yeah, fun. Thanks, Larkin. And if ever you're up in the, in the Boston area, give us a shout. Come and hit some balls at Core. Come and check out our awesome facility. And if you make the, uh, I believe it's the US Open this year, right? Yeah. Down at, down at Brookline. Give us a shout. We'll, uh, we'll look after you very well. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I'll have to do that. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Thank you, dude. Great podcast. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Core Performance Podcast. Your one-stop shop for getting to the core of all things golf and human performance. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Ian and Andrew, check us out on Instagram at Core Academy. We'll see you next time.